Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 71. Hello, my beautiful friends. It's so great to be back with you again this week. I really missed being here with you last week. To all my friends in the United States, I hope you had a restful holiday. And to all of my other friends around the world, I'm so glad that you're back here with me again this week. And if you're new here, welcome to the Healing Catalyst podcast. I'm your host, Avanti, and I'm so glad that you're here. So today we're rounding out a month-long exploration during the month of November of Connection to Others as Medicine with my guest, Rocky Mutha. A director, filmmaker, writer, and artist, Rocky has a deep understanding of the creative process and an even more profound understanding of the art of storytelling. Her short films and web series surrounding mental health and relationships in the South Asian diaspora have gone viral, receiving wide acclaim. The Good Indian Bride, a visceral love letter to the sisterhood, investigates the role of patriarchy in North Indian wedding rituals and stands as one of Rocky's most powerful curatorial projects to date. Rocky is also the COO of Rupee Corps Incorporated, where she continues to change the way an author's work can be amplified with the support of a team helping to bring their broader visions to life. Whether a small village with no Wi-Fi or the top floor of a skyscraper, Rocky has the heart of a storyteller and believes that fearless artists don't have to be starving artists an empowering ethos which fuels both her future artistic and business ventures. In our conversation, we dive into Rocky's journey into film and writing and how her work in the nonprofit world became a way to serve through art. We discuss how she met Rupi Kaur and what compelled her to help amplify Rupi's poetry, helping to make Rupi one of the best-selling poets in history. Rocky also shares why story and storytelling is a powerful point of connection between people and why it's healing medicine. I am so happy to share my beautiful heart-to-heart conversation with Rocky Mutha about the healing medicine of connection to others through story. Well, hello, Rocky. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I know we've been trying to do this for a while and this is going to be fun. I have so many questions to ask you. And so thank you for doing this with me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And so, you know, this month we are talking about connection to others. And I thought you would be the most amazing person to talk to because you are a storyteller and storytelling is a way that we connect with others. And so before we get into all of that, you know, I really am curious because you have such an interesting background. You're a filmmaker, an artist, a director, a writer, and you also had your start in the nonprofit world. And now you're the COO for the poet Rupi Kaur, who is like this amazing sensation and you run her company. But I'm curious, 
why filmmaking and writing and like, how did that lead to working in the nonprofit sector? Like, let's go back. Why did you choose this as a career? Because it's pretty rare. You're not the same age as me. You're a little bit younger than me, but still older than, you know, my kids. And it's not a very traditional industry or career to pick for our generation of South Asians who are first generation here, you know, in Canada and in the United States, you're in Canada. So tell me about, like, how did this all happen? Yes. So first, I would say that I grew up in a very unique household. And I grew up where I would say, like, both of my parents are artists. And my dad is actually an activist. So, you know, I was woke before woke was even a thing. (laughs) Like we grew up in a house that was very, very aware and conversations around race relations, indigenous issues, the LGBT community. I was having those conversations from when I was nine years old. So my lens to the world was different. and. Uh, My mom was an artist. She was always, I think like a lot of our moms, sewing and painting and drawing and making art out of everything, right? Like everything was art to her. Food, gardening, everything had to look a particular way. She was so particular. Uh, There were like gentle hands with the way she touched things. It was magical. And often in the evenings when we would come home from playing outside, Uh, we would see my dad painting. We would see him sculpting. We would see him woodworking. So, and also both my brothers went to art school. So like the joke is, um, my mom says, she's like, you're the least talented of the entire family and the most successful. (laughs) And when it comes to art, you know, I grew up in a house with some very serious artists, like, um, and so just this deep regard for art. That's the first thing. And a deep respect for how art starts conversations and how it can be used as a tool. So that was always a value of mine. And then filmmaking, just like, what a world. I love film. From a young age, just like getting transported into different worlds, the exposure it provided and allowed. For me at that young age, it was really the love stories. I loved getting transported into people's love stories. You know what I mean? But as I got older, there were little glimpses into other people's realities and their worlds. And how profound is that? Because, I mean, we weren't traveling like we were traveling now. Financially, we were in a different state. So how else would you be exposed to the world? In different worlds, different people. Um, and experiences. And so that was my introduction to filmmaking. And I loved it. And I also just loved getting lost. So I loved creating. uh, And I loved that. And um, nonprofit, really, I just, I knew I wanted to do something to serve community and humanity and the world and, and do my little piece in leaving the world a better place than I found it. And so it just, you know, and then I did the traditional route. I went to school for um, community development and outreach and working with grassroots community. So I did the more traditional route and then I married the two and that sort of happened organically. I was working with young people 
what better way to get young people talking about their issues than engaging the arts, music, film, theater, anything you could think of, like it's such a beautiful marriage. And then that work ended up becoming award-winning work. And then I was able to travel the globe and doing different projects using the arts, using film and photography to help different communities across the globe document their own stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to pause you there because I have so many questions that will come back to this, the idea of telling people's stories. But, you know, I identify with so much of what you're saying. My mother is an artist also. And so I grew up with her as a homemaker, but as an artist, she was painting and drawing and sewing and cooking and doing all of these things. And, you know, as I'm listening to you tell this story, I'm reflecting on the fact that I was so influenced by that as well. And there is something to being around a creative person as a parent, (laughs) who's your parent and how influential that can be. But it's so interesting, but because for me, (laughs) I didn't go into the arts. Instead, I went into the health professions and, you know, I, I, I guess I nurtured my creativity in different ways. What gave you sort of the confidence? Maybe that's what I'm asking you is because I don't know that at the time that I was growing up, my parents are immigrants here, just trying to make it. I didn't have the confidence to do something like art because I knew it was a really hard life. What gave you the confidence to pursue that path? I think it was like the perfect storm of a bunch of things. One, my parents had a very, well, not my mom so much. My dad has a very hands-off approach to parenting. And his lens is that your soul's job is to explore. That's it. So he doesn't interfere. There was never conversations in our house. You've got to be a lawyer. You have to be an accountant. Like the test always for him was, does it make you happy? Does this bring you joy? Is this in line with your soul's journey? Those were his questions. So there was never this external pressure of what you're supposed to do. What would it mean to make it? Those were never conversations in our home. The test was always what brings you the most amount of joy. So I think that freedom that a lot of like, I would say, I mean, brown children, let alone brown women, like don't get that. And then I would say combined with my stubbornness, like just my head, strong (laughs) approach to life. And my dad even says it. He's like, Rocky is so stubborn that even if God comes down and tells Rocky, this is the way it is, Rocky will look at God and be like, no way. No, it's not. We will find a new way. Like, this has just been my, we're just going to figure it out. We're just going to figure it out. And I think there's also a beautiful naivety, like to just jumping in with this deep belief that things are going to work out. And I think that has proven to be the greatest success. Yeah, that's evident because of what you're doing now and taking, you know, a big chance on an unknown poet, young poet who is 20 something years old 
and you're like, okay, I'm going to do this, but I know we're going to get there, but I want to go back to the nonprofit work. So you mentioned something that I find really interesting that you married these two worlds, the world of filmmaking and art and the world of wanting to serve others in this world through the nonprofit sector. Tell me about that storytelling piece, because that seems to be the bridge between the two. What was that for you? Like, how, give me an example. So there was a moment when you learn about the power of an image or you learn about the, like, this was it for me. We were driving from Tamil Nadu to Kerala. We stopped at the side of a, at a village. And over there, we were um, speaking with the, the local tea person, with our translator. And that land had been allotted to them by the government, the Dalit folks. Um, they were allotted land by the government. And it was this really, dare I say, like useless land until they built the national highway through it. And then the value skyrocketed. And then you saw the dominant caste folks want that property. So then there were all of these atrocities that kept happening to this community. Um, their village was burnt down. Their kids were held at ransom for the papers. All of these horrible things were happening. And in the end, one horrible night, 11 of the uh, husbands were murdered. And the women then went to the police station to file a complaint. And the police officer said, well, where's their picture? And they're like, well, we don't have any. Now we're talking about in the 90s. This is not the time when everyone had cell phones and like, you know what I mean? They're like, we don't have any. And then the police very quickly turned around and said, well, then they don't exist. Wow. They never existed. No crime took place. Obviously, we know the police were in cahoots. Right. With the dominant caste folks. We know that. But the fact that they could just so very easily say it and, and how one image could have made that much of a difference made me realize a few things at that very moment, which was like, holy shit, how powerful is an image to who has been holding whose images hostage? Like, mm. how has history been told? Who's told it? Who has had the privilege of telling it? And so then what history, like, have we been even fed the right history? Mm -hmm. If it was always the victor of wars telling our stories. So like it, it just spiraled. I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And I was there with my uh, best friend, Natasha. Um, and then we, we co-created an organization called Kahania Sister Sharing Stories. And through that, we traveled around and helped community document their own trials and tribulations so that you could hear from their mouth versus other people going in and saying, these are what your, this is your story, or these are your experiences, or this is that. So I think that was a turning moment for me. Yeah. So you're doing this nonprofit work. You start producing these beautiful films and, you know, winning awards for all of this. And then you meet Rupi Kaur. So tell us about that story, about how did that happen? So actually I was in my master's and I was studying film, feminist studies and South Asian studies. And I was yearning to be connected. I had spent so many years traveling, like close to 10 years traveling. And then I was trying to establish roots back in Toronto. And I was like, oh, let me connect with like-minded folks. 
So there was a sick feminist conference happening in Michigan, Michigan University that year. So I was like, oh, let me drive down to Michigan and see, like, let's just connect with some like-minded women. And then one of the coordinators, the organizers, she called me and she said, can you pick up two young women that don't have a ride? And I honestly, Avanti, I did not want to because I just wanted to drive and have the window open, like let the wind blow through my hair while screaming to Beyonce songs at the top of my lungs and just like reconnect with myself. But then I was like, no, we have to give back to the community. So yes, I will take these two women. And one of the two women, like one woman was Rupi Kaur and the other was K-Ray. And so like, it was just fate and destiny. Rupi wasn't Rupi Kaur as she is now, obviously, right? Um, <laughs> But she performed a piece. She performed broken English. And I was so moved. I actually cried. And I felt it in every... Milk and Honey wasn't even published at the time, but she had written broken English. And it was such a profound piece. And we had connected on that drive. Like we were long lost friends. And, you know, in an intense amount, like in 48 hours, you're together nonstop, a bond really built. Like it was amazing. And I just knew like we, even when she got out of the car, she said, why do I have a feeling we're going to know each other forever? Like there was just something. And so we just sort of stayed in touch. And when she did her launch for milk and honey, I, I showed up and then we just used to kind of talk here and there. I used to give her advice here and there as like an older sister in the community. And then she actually called me and said, like, I want to take my career to the next level. Will you come on? Also, I would say, Avanti, the first time I felt like I met somebody whose work ethic matched my work ethic, like whose hustle matched my hustle and beyond and inspired me. And so very, we had set like these lofty year goals and we met them in three months. And then we were like, well, what's next? what's next? And we were just so excited. And the work became so much that my supervisor, my master said, like, you can't do this. You have to choose. You can't do both. Your professors are complaining. Uh, you can't travel this much. And so and she luckily being a, a South Asian woman said, I think you're on to something really special and you can come back at any time and do your master's. So just and it's been like, I haven't looked back. It's one thing to, to be around someone who, you know, is going to, you know, be successful and all that. But I feel like after talking to you, you know, we've had personal conversations that it was something much more for you than just helping a young artist, which is important, but it was much more than that. When I read Milk and Honey, that book moved me to the core, the honesty, the rawness, the vulnerability, it was finally as if there was a voice for all of the things South Asian women had been going through silently and how they had been suffering silently for so long. And somebody in the rawest form had the, um, the sheer guts to just say it and lift the cloak off the ugliness. And I felt like that voice needed and deserved to be amplified and protected and brought to the masses as, 
you know, I mean, I'm not a fool. Rupi can't represent all South Asian women, nor does she ever try to. But I felt like if this voice could at least strike a chord or be a role model for other people so so many of, of the other issues could come forward, then it was my responsibility and my duty to help project this voice. Yeah. Which is, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about your work in the nonprofit world. It's the same idea because you saw that there was a need to share these women's stories, these women who had lost their husbands and had no proof of them existing. And you were like, this is wrong. I have to do something. And so you decided to amplify their voices by helping them share their story. And you did the same thing with Rupi, which I think is just incredible. And it's such service that you are doing in such a beautiful, beautiful, meaningful way. And so what do you think is so important about story and storytelling? There's so many beautiful things, right? There's a deep emotional connection. There's representation and story can be used to like for everything. You want to raise awareness. You tell it through a story. You want to build something. You want to convey emotion. So I just, I feel like story is the root of everything. You know, it's what I use even with my son. It's the number one way I try to teach him. Is Even though I think he rolls his eyes and he doesn't have any understanding, but I just feel it's like the crux and the core, and especially of, of our, our culture that's so ancient and old. Story, the conversation, the dialogue, I feel like it's magical. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's something that is experiential, right? It, it uses all our senses, right? We're listening, we're sort of imagining, right? We might be watching someone tell a story, right? So there's that use of your senses to engage with another human being, but I feel like it's something else. And you kind of alluded to this is that it touches at the core of experiences that human beings have that we can connect somehow, even if we don't have the same story or the same experience, there is something in sharing stories that connects us as human beings. So even if you and I don't have the same story or I don't have the same story of, you know, of the women in that village, I can connect in this very, very deep way, just as you were describing when you were listening to Rupi's story or her performance, right? It touched you to a core regardless of whether you had had that experience or not, right? So I think there's something very primal almost in that. And so I would love to know, I mean, you've done so many of your own projects. I mean, it's one thing to amplify other people's stories, but you've done a lot of artistic projects. Can you tell us about some of the films and some of the, the pieces that you've done? You've done interactive experiences. What have been maybe one or two of the most significant ones to you personally and and why tell us about those i would say two of my i wouldn't say favorite i would say good indian bride is actually one of my favorites but anarchly i think has been one of my greatest learning lessons and so anarchly i actually wrote when i was 19 and i didn't shoot anarchly till i was 34 maybe 32 anarchly was my answer to a brown girl's sex in the city. So it's just, it's three girls dating and their life experiences. 
being South Asian women and navigating love and dating. So I wrote it as a film and then I wrote it at 19 and I shelved it because I was like, who would want to see a film on brown girls? Again, that thinking, because I hadn't seen representation. So I was like, this is not worthy. But when I was sitting in the car again, going to Michigan, Kay Ray was sitting in the, in the passenger seat and we, I had picked her up first before I picked up Rupi and I kept looking at her and I was like, holy shit, you're like my lead actress come to life. Like my lead character, anarchically come to life. And so in passing, I told her, I said, oh my God, I wrote a film when I was 19 called Anarchly, and you're just like, you're the, like the character, the lead character, it's you. And then she started laughing and she just said, oh, you should make it then. I'm like, what do you mean? Just make it. How do you just make it? And she's like, oh, the web, which was all new to me, right? Like the, this younger generation and YouTube and web series, seeing Rupi and her art, seeing Kitten and her art, it reignited a fire in me because I wasn't doing filmmaking. I had stopped after like I had done my traveling and I was trying to settle in. I was trying to do the proper thing, I guess. So I had stopped with the art and it reignited. And then I, I wrote the series uh, for web and turned it into a web series. And then we shot it. And how beautiful can I tell you when we shot the pilot, which was the first three episodes of season one, there was 23 people on set and 21 were like Punjabi women that just wanted to see this come to life. They showed up and they, and it was not, it was a rigorous schedule, but they showed up because they wanted to see that representation. They were hungry for the content. Yeah. So that was significant because you had an idea. Someone said, let's make it. And then everyone showed up to support you. Yeah. And they must have seen something in that story that they connected to because they must have read it or, and there was some connection, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. So tell us about Good Indian Bride. So the Good Indian Bride actually stemmed from a conversation I had with my mom where I went, I was telling her I was going on a date. And then she asked me when I came home, she's like, how was it? And I was like, oh, it was so good. He gave me butterflies. And she was like, where'd he give them? And I was like, well, what do you mean? She's like, well, where did he give them? Did he give them in a cage? Did he give them in a box? And I was like, oh, mama, no, no, no. That's a feeling you get. And then she looked at me and then it stemmed deeper conversations with my mom about, you know, she had an arranged marriage, but it stemmed deeper conversations around like love and dating and consent. And then, you know, digging deeper into my grandmother who got married at the age of 11 and what consent would have looked like. And, and then digging deep into the experiences of my aunts. And it just start, like started this unraveling of gathering of information. And from it, I, I had this idea of the Good Indian Bride photo shoot, which was like literally just looking at what the good Indian bride is. Literally all the things that you're quiet, don't speak, what you're supposed to physically look like. 
And then I was like, oh, I really like this. And we started shooting and playing. But and then I was like, okay, like, am I going to do an exhibit? But I just I didn't want a gaze because I felt like Indian women had been gazed upon and exotified in all of these like weird ways. So I was like, I felt like people should feel as uncomfortable as so many of these Indian women have felt for years and generations. And so I decided to make it an interactive exhibit. And so literally bringing the photographs to life so people would have to interact and deal with how uncomfortable they are. And so that was that. It was a one night only, the amount of work that went into it. Again, a major labor of love from so many people. And yes, and that's what that exhibit was. Wow. Again, storytelling and what connects you, right, to other people. And so I'm really curious, you picked these topics that were sort of reflective of what you were going through, what conversations with your mom, conversations with your friends. So there was something that rang true to you. How do you think stories are healing? I think sometimes when you, when there's just an acknowledgement of the pain, when you can just see yourself represented, I think that helps with the healing. Sometimes stories become the starting point. Sometimes they're the ending. Sometimes they can wrap things up for you. They can be that aha moment. And one thing I realized with Haneri, one of the films we shot on um, depression, uh, was that that was a conversation starter for a lot of people that weren't even aware about depression. So I think for me, just like they go hand in hand because of the the representation, the reflection, um, and then you have to actually do the work that comes with it. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, people will look at going to a film or to a movie as an escape from real life, right? Absolutely. And they say, oh, they go into the film, they leave, and it's like, okay, that was a story, it's not real, and I can go back to my life. Absolutely. What do you think makes a story so powerful that it is that beginning or that ending versus just, ah, I can go back to my life? Escapism. So I'm the number one. Like if you see what I consume, I always ex like consume escapism, especially when I'm traveling and the work was so heavy. When I would come back, I did not have the emotional capacity to watch documentaries or to consume anything with any more trauma. I was at my capacity. So I would consume Avanti, the cheesiest Bollywood flicks you could possibly get your hands. Like the cheesier, the better. Because I just, I needed something mind numbing that was so far from my reality. But I think what the difference is, I think is, First of all, what is the content that you're dealing with? And then there's all of the elements of how are you telling that story, right? Is it sensationalism? Is it rooted in reality? Who's writing that story? Because, you know, um, 
I think far too long, men have been writing women's stories and it wasn't connecting. But as we're seeing more women telling that there's like so many of those like aha moments, those like, ah, I finally feel like I'm represented. Thank God for this story. You know what I mean? So yes. Who's telling it? Why are they telling it? What's the Right. Because there's, I guess it's sort of the difference between telling a story to your kid, right? As just fun and games and, you know, it's for entertainment versus telling a story that may be entertaining, but there's some moral to the story, some lesson to learn from the story, right? But then what you're talking about is the representation piece, right? Is that when, that it's not just the story, but it's also who's telling the story. I think that's what you're getting at. Absolutely. Is that that matters so much because it depends on who's telling the story. Because if you see a story being told by someone who you identify with, Mm -hmm. you're going to think more about how does that affect you? Has that happened to me? Do I connect with that story? Because the storyteller is someone Mm -hmm. you identify with. And then there's more authenticity, obviously, right? Like if someone that grew up in a Punjabi household, knows the nuances of the way the language is spoken, the small mannerisms of how families work, what happens when another family comes over or relatives come over. An outsider can interview people, but you haven't lived that. How would you get those small pieces that when as an audience you're watching and you're like, oh my God, I know it. You know, when you talk out loud, sometimes like, oh my God, Yes, every Punjabi family has that. Or like the small things of what the houses look like. Those things get lost. Those, you know, which I think are critical for being authentic. Yeah. Right. The nuances within the stories, right? Yeah. And so I think what what, what we're talking about is that there are different types of stories. There's the stories that we connect to because it's just part of being human right? It's a human experience. And so we can, whether it's in a language we know or don't know, or, you know, it's an experience we've had or not, there's something about it that's very human. But then there's the other stories that you're talking about, which I think is what you are, you're so gifted in amplifying and telling is the stories that are very specific to South Asians also in the sense of our experiences, things that we can relate to, the subtleties and nuances in those stories that I think are so important because of that representation, that, that identification you have with those stories that are being told. I know, you know, this is bringing up for me sort of storytelling that goes beyond even the art, right? In films, in books and writing, it happens in among people. And we, we actually had an experience of this a few weekends ago when we all gathered here in Chicago, there were seven of us, South Asian women, who gathered And it was really, as I'm thinking about it, about storytelling. I mean, we were sharing to help each other amplify our voices in in the impact-driven, you know, thought leadership businesses and roles that we have in the world. But as I'm thinking about it in the context of this conversation we're having, it was about sharing our stories, about giving voice to each other's experiences and the commonalities that we had. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like that that is such an important piece of how we communicate something that I think maybe 
a lot of us have been really thirsting for in this crazy world that we've been in for the past two and a half, three years, where we want to share stories with each other. We want to have that connection. And so as we're going into these holidays, you know, there's something about connecting with others through story, through sharing our experiences, through being vulnerable enough to share honestly and authentically. What's one of your favorite stories, Rocky? I like fables a lot. And I like them also, I think, because of the emotional connection. Like we all used to gather on my parents' bed at nighttime growing up. And we just used to sit around and talk as a family. And then my dad would share stories like, you know, the boy who cried wolf. And then he would share stories of Guru Nanak and like the teaching and the morals. And so I think I like those. I think it gives me a very like nostalgic feeling. And those are probably the ones you're also sharing with your son right now. Yeah, I'm waiting for him to grow up a little bit so I can like yappity yap more. But, you know, he's not really interested in anything except for pop. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, but those are those are those stories of nostalgia. And I think also the time that we were growing up, our parents had just come from India. And so there was a lot of that storytelling that went on. It was a way that they carried on their traditions and sort of through oral tradition were imparting this wisdom to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I feel the same. So I have a couple more questions for you. What is one myth about story or creativity that we need to change? That it has to be difficult. Hmm. Tell me more about that. I just, I feel like creativity is everywhere in every breath. And I feel like we have been sold this story that only like broke artists are genius artists. And I don't think that necessarily is the case. Are there times when creativity, when you're digging deep into your bones is challenging? Absolutely. But there's also times when you're so aligned to the universe that things just flow and they're easy. And that's also okay. So there's a lot of stereotypes around the artist and what it's supposed to look like. Yeah, no, you're right about that. If I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you, Rocky? I would say it would be storytelling. I think when, like, especially collectively, when you're able to share your truths, your experiences, you're able to release, and that release allows for deep healing. Mm, beautiful. Rocky, thank you so much. I loved talking to you, and thank you for doing this with me. And thank you so much for all the wonderful work that you're sharing and all the tools that you're providing for people. It's so critical and important. Thank you. I love you, sister. I love you too. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at Avanti Kumar Singh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, 
With the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.